Hello, everyone. You're listening to Digital Builder, a podcast brought to you by Autodesk, made for construction professionals who want to hear from those on the forefront of construction technology. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Each episode will feature a conversation with a construction industry leader. Together, we'll dig in on themes related to connected construction and discuss where the future of the construction industry is headed. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Digital Builder. I'm your host, Eric Thomas. This week, we're diving into the wild world of data standards. We'll learn what ISO 19650 is and how leveraging data standards improves project delivery. We'll also discuss what the future may bring to the world of data and how our listeners can prepare themselves. My guests today hail from all corners of the globe, and I'm once again pleased to bring some new accents to the discussion that outshine my very bland Midwestern accent. (laughs) This week, I'm joined by Fred Ramos, principal at IDOS in Singapore, and Merrick Suhatsky, infrastructure industry engagement lead here at Autodesk. Thanks for joining me on the show today, gentlemen. I'm excited to hear a bit more about your approach to data standards and getting some more insight on successfully collaborating at a global scale. But before we jump in, can you share your history with the AEC industry and where in the world you're working from today? Frederica, how about you go first? Sure. Thank you, Eric, for having us here. It's a pleasure for us to be part of this famous podcast of Autodesk. I'm joining in today from Singapore. I am an architect by profession. I have a second degree in environmental planning. I have over 26 years of experience. That's why you can see this gray air. (laughs) And um, I've been around a little bit through the world. So I've been in Asia since 2000. And five, and that's already the second time that I that I came to Asia. And I've worked in Hong Kong, Singapore, Melbourne, and have developed work across five continents. And any, we'd like to say that my wide range of experience allows me to engage in any type of projects. It sounds like you've got a, a wide breadth of experience that we get to, to unpack here today, which is going to be a lot of fun. Merrick, how about you? Can you give us a little bit of background about your experience in the AEC industry? Yes, uh, thank you, Eric. And it's really interesting to hear that uh, Frederico has also got a similar random background to them to myself. I'm a chartered civil engineer. I'm a fellow of the Institution of Civil Engineers. I'm also actually a chartered IT professional and fellow of the British Computer Society. So that might give you a clue to the fact that both my kind of focus areas are civil engineering and the domain of uh, technology. I've got 30 years experience in the industry and I've done a a variety of jobs because I've never decided what I really wanted to do. So I spent a couple of years as a contractor was quite good at that, so left and went and spent four years as a research fellow at the University of Reading. Had enough of that because I wasn't paid enough money. <laughs> Did half a year as a quantity surveyor, which I didn't want to go back to. But then I spent eight, eight years at Atkins, now part of SNC-Lavalin, where I joined their research team and became research and innovation manager and really started to pioneer the adoption and deployment of tools that we might call BIM today and virtual reality and so forth. And, and I was a member of the best named team in the world. We were the virtual reality and object oriented modeling systems team, which is the rooms. So that, that's never going to be better. I left there and then spent four years at another engineering consultant, Michelle, in the UK, where I was part of the senior leadership team in the IT department. And I sat on the IT side of the fence, which was a really valuable lesson for my next career step, which is joining Autodesk, where I've been for over 11 years. And I've been trying to change the industry from different angles. So from the supply side, from the IT department side, and now from the software vendor side, we're really trying to encourage the industry to adopt new tools to be more productive and have a bit more fun, I think, is a really core aspect. And just as a kind of byproduct of my activities, I've been deeply involved in the adoption of technology from the UK industry perspective that's migrated me into the domain of data standards and I've been part of the British Standards Technical Committee for Construction Design Modeling since I think it was 12 years now. So it's we've got such a, a wide range of experience between the both of you today that it's going to be a lot of fun to unpack. And Merrick, I had a chuckle when you were mentioning things that you did not want to do anymore because <laughs> I feel like my path through the AEC space has been similar in in some space in some senses, especially when it comes to the proposal management that I did for so many years. I got to a point where it was like. I will never do this 
again. Like it was a really wonderful learning experience, and I'm very thankful for uh, for the trajectory it brought me into the position I'm in today. But I just uh, I had to laugh when you were you know sharing the the I don't want to do this part anymore. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, we're going to start today by looking closely at global data standards, specifically ISO 19650. Plus, we'll discuss some common challenges and best practices for successfully collaborating as a global construction team. And as the volume of project data increases daily and we're collaborating across different regions that are larger than ever, I think it's really important to ensure that the processes we're using every day are scalable and sustainable. So Fred, I'm going to kick the first question to you today. Can you tell our listeners what exactly is ISO 19650 and why is it and other data standards important? And I'd love to hear an elevator pitch first, followed by some more of the finer details associated with these um, different standards. We can say that standards, in a way, and they, they're all around us. And when, even when we've seen that we don't actually have are using a standard, we are using standards in the most simple things in the world as even your electrical plug. It is a standard. It's like, why do we have two plugs in Europe? And in the UK, you have three. That's a standard because someone determined a standard. And the ISO 19650 series is actually the standard for, we can say that's BIM, although it's a longer name, it's something like, organization and digitalization of information about buildings and civil engineer works, including BIM. But why do I think it's fundamental that we adopt it? Because standards are derived to allow us to easily communicate and interface with each other. I always like to give this example. So imagine that everywhere around Everywhere around the world, whenever you enter a car, the standard how your steering wheel and your pedals were arranged was different. You will not be able to actually enter anywhere in the world and, and to drive a car. In reality, we have two standards and how vehicles move around the, the roads in the world. But in the majority of the, apart from that, you either drive on the right or drive on the left, depending if you are on the UK or if you are in Europe. But it's pretty evident from that the advantage that you can the standards make in ensuring that we can all communicate with each other. The BIM 19650 series does that for BIM informational and AEC processes. It is about it has five components as we know. So uh, the first one is part one is about concepts and principles. The second one is about delivery of the asset phases. The third one is operational phase of the assets. The fourth one, information exchange. It's the only one that is not yet released. And the fifth one is about the security of information. So it's it's how do you manage information that is related to, to secure the information? How do you manage it through the process? And I personally believe that even if you don't want to use a standard, you actually are using a standard, your own standard. So it makes all the sense that if you are going to adopt the standard, just adopt the one that is going to be widely used in the world anyway. At least that will facilitate the way that you communicate with others. Why? Because BIM is fundamental about collaboration and transparency. And that will be radically enhanced with common standards. I love that baseline you're setting here of just being able to communicate with each other, especially when we're going from country to country. I, I feel like there's language barriers and all sorts of other things that we can consider as we collaborate. And starting from that universal platform and expectation setting is such a productive way to work with new partners and new teams and new regions and such. So I, I definitely appreciate that, that level set. Merrick, do you have any uh, additional comments on that one that you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, for certain, actually. And, and I think the, the kind of different perspective I'll take on it is that in my kind of career, I've worked with quality management, not myself directly. I've worked with a safety, health, environment and quality team at Mouchelle, where they're trying to deploy those kind of processes within the organization to make sure that everybody did it the Mouchelle way and similarly in Atkins and in my other employers. 
And, and ISO 19650 is part of a series of quality standards. So the, the top one is ISO 9001. I think most people out there will have heard of it and be complying in some way to demonstrate that a company follows procedures, frankly. And there is another series called ISO 55000, which is for asset management, and 21500 for project management. So these standards have been around for a while, and certainly most professional companies, such as those in our, our industry, will uh, abide by and follow some of these guidances. So 19650 is just the kind of capital and operational delivery phase focused on information management. So it's as a subset of a pre-existing series of quality standards and really trying to put some detail on how we manage information. And the second comment I'll make is I've lived through the pain. So I mentioned at the beginning that I worked for a contractor and then I went to university to work at university and then for, for Atkins. And, and when I was at a contractor, I, every day I would have to fill in a site diary, which is a big A3 sheet of paper. And I would write on it, what did I see? What did I do and what did I see? And I use this thing called carbon paper, which for people under the age of 20 probably means absolutely nothing. But it was a kind of cheap photocopying technique where you would put a couple of sheets between uh, three different pieces of paper and it would transcribe what you wrote on the top one down to the ones below. And I would keep a copy, give one to the site agent and one to the uh, site quantity surveyor. And these were our records on site of what happened. And the same for things like uh, RFIs, uh, confirmation of verbal instructions and other on-site forms because we didn't have a digital way of doing this. And then when I joined Atkins, the team I joined were, was in the IT systems department, which is the first place that email was launched. And immediately when everybody got email, it was chaos. So all of those quality control procedures went out the window because people were attaching documents, sending them around to each other. Whereas when I started, I'd write out a letter. The uh, One of the PAs, the uh, uh, administrators, she typically would type it up, give it back to myself, give it back to my manager. We would go through it. We'd correct it. It would then be retyped up. Then it would get signed by uh, a senior person, put in an envelope and posted and a copy kept in our lockers. Email destroyed all of that. And, and I think these standards that we've got now are there purely to reintroduce a bit of quality and control and de-risk what we do in our industry, which is you can't have everybody sending stuff around willy-nilly. It's got to be, I know, I sent you something for this intent. Do not use it for any other purpose. And that's what ISO 19650 is fundamentally about. I like how you tie that back to email. And it's such an interesting and simple way to walk through how difficult digitization can be if it's not executed well. And now that we've got so many different solutions, it's point solutions that can do some really amazing things for our industry. It's a matter of stepping back and having that intentionality with how you capture data, what data you're actually gathering, and then looking at that future state too of deciding what do you really want to leverage because capturing data just for the sake of data doesn't necessarily benefit anybody at the end of the day because you're not making insights on it. You're not inferring anything from it. And you also might be just complicating things because now you don't know where to start when you're looking for information to make decisions and choices. And Merrick, I know you were talking earlier about the fact that you've helped implement some of these standards in EMEA. And so I want to pick your brain here. How do these get created? Like how does ISO 19650 start and how do these specifications get brought to the world? Uh, awesome question because it's not easy. It's complicated, as you might imagine. I'm pleased to say that the UK were a pioneers in this area. Just like every many other nations, we have a national standards body called British Standards, and they don't write the standards. They're there to organise the creation of standards. So they use the community of experts and industry, hopefully, to define what constitutes good practice. I, I never use the term best practice because that implies you can't get better. So all we're trying to do is codify. Uh, consistent and good standard practice. So what you then create is a, certainly in the UK, we called it a publicly available specification or a PAS, where we then bring the community together and everybody then negotiates their take on the same issue. And we then codify that up. And, and for the BIM standards in the UK, that's what, how we went forward. We upgraded an old CAD standard called BS 1192 Part 5 1998 to BS 1192 2007 where we brought together experience from early deployment of object modeling and these collaboration platforms on projects like Terminal 5 at Heathrow. And we wrote down the good practices. So we wrote them down, released this standard, and came up with a concept of a thing called a common data environment. And that is a 
process, not a technology, but it's a way of, as I said earlier, sharing information in a controlled manner. So I send it to you, clearly knowing that it's been quality controlled at my end. So my design team leader signed it off and said, yes, you can send that to Thread because the architects need that as a reference. So they can use it for coordination. But Eric, who's the constructor, he cannot build from it. We must be clear on that. So that's the kind of the common data environment process, really controlling the release and use of information. And then we were so happy with this that we then really pushed the idea of BIM in the UK, the UK BIM mandate that many people would have heard of, that central government start specifying BIM in contracts. But the only way they could specify things in contracts is if they referred to a standard. So we had to develop a whole load of guidance notes proved so effective and popular even internationally that we released what was called PAS 1192 Part 2 as a candidate for ISO, for international standardization. And again, the international community came together, negotiated around terminologies, negotiated around all the kind of details of the standard and created what we call ISO 19650 today as a family of standards, which are being tested live in many geos. I, mean, I just wanted to add one thing that Fred mentioned, that there are five parts to the standard. I'm sorry, it's actually six. There is a new candidate for ISO 19650 part six for health and safety. So part four and six are currently in draft. And it's really a good reflection that they're proving so popular that people are recognizing that if we can deploy these information management principles and procedures in different sub areas of our industry that they are working i'd like to say that they're not perfect by by any stretch of the imagination but it's all about controlled information management around by the way what we call containers so it's funny language that's what the one of the quirks of this set of standards and a container could really be a file like a, a bim model or a, a folder or a zip file or a document. It's a kind of a neutral thing. And as I say, the common data environment is the way we've managed the information, but that can also be supported by technologies. Thank you so much for that that insightful response, Merrick, because candidly, when I asked that question, I did not know what the answer was <laughs> at all. And I know we all benefit from these and, and we're all very thankful that the work has gone into it to bring the, the industry. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening who may not be as familiar with you know, the nuances of how those actually are created and then implemented. Thanks for the work that you've done on these in the past. And Fred, I've got a question for you, considering your you know wide experience across the globe and all the different stakeholders in the AEC space. So how can all of these stakeholders, like architects, contractors, or project owners, benefit from implementing the different data standards? Like, I know we've talked about it at a high level, but I love some more tangible examples of, you know, where you've seen some benefit drawn from these standards. Let's start from an architect point of view, right? The fact that you are, act are actually able to, across regions, across different sectors of our activity to apply the same principles and rules uh, for data interchange are of critical and massive information. And I'm going to divert a little bit here because I think I've, I need to make uh, a little bit statement on how I believe that the industry is going to evolve. And you mentioned about that on the beginning, Eric, about the importance of collecting data, but the data needed to be structured. I think that on the coming years, we are going to change uh, to face a challenge of as we evolve for something that I like to call co-authorship between humans and computer computational design, the importance of algorithms is going to evolve much more you're going to involve in our processes. And our algorithms are going to be smarter and more efficient the more data that they have. So the fact that we have a standard that facilitates the way that we can collect data and, and structure data across the industry will make it, I believe, much easier in the future to be able to respond to the future needs of the, our industry. A lot of people are talking about ISO because of what we need today and what the benefits that we bring you today, I tend to see it as a much more as a unifier playing field in terms of data structure that it will, in the years to come, give us the base of data collection, database, database approaches that we're going to develop in the future, if that makes some, some kind of sense. But again, it's from a very practical point of view, let's start 
probably by the simplest example that I can see. With the ISO, it came also a nomenclature for files. For all of us that have worked in BIM, we know that BIM is about collaboration, is about actually sharing files among several organizations. And each time a file changes name between a phase or because someone decided to change a name, you need to redo all your links and you need to work it all around. You, can, you might say, okay, I don't really see this problem as a problem because my BIM manager team will take care of that. I see it as a problem when suddenly a, user, a group of 20 users in your project is not able to see information that they need on the spot to make a decision because someone broke a link. The advantage of having all these issues discussed at the beginning on a very early stage and actually agreed and being cons consistently adopted through the industry all across multi-sectors and, and multi-regions makes all of this much seamless. Okay, we can always argue that a good beam execution plan will do the same, but it will not give you that universality of topics that ISO naming nomenclature will adopt. As I mentioned in the beginning, you always adopt the standard. It can be your own standard or it can be a standard that everybody knows without you even losing any time to explain to it. So that means that when you are in a project, you every step through the way, you're gaining time, right? Because you don't need to, okay, let's at least agree on what are the definitions that we are talking about. You don't need to, because ISO has their definitions. You just say, are we adopting the ISO 9650 definitions? Yes, so we, have a, we all know what we're talking about when we say BIM. We all know what we're talking about when we say EIR. It is exchange information requirements. It's not employment information requirements, because that was before, now it changed. So all these simple things are added values in terms of optimization of the process, because you focus on not setting up everything new every time you start a project. And this is very simple examples in that sense. And they apply through, doesn't matter if you are an architect, doesn't matter if you are a contractor, it doesn't matter if you are a facility management, it's, it goes throughout. Of course, I feel that ISO gives you the framework that allows you to actually glue all of this together seamlessly. I appreciate that insight there. And I think for construction as a whole, just ensuring that we're putting our best foot forward with the productivity dance is so important. And like you said, saving that time where you don't have to have a conversation about defining the standards because you can just point at ISO and go, this is what we're adopting. And everybody goes, okay. And you start work instead of having that lengthy conversation, which could potentially be contentious depending on the, uh, the stakeholders that you're employing on the project and just moving forward. So I, uh, I appreciate that. And Merrick, I, I'm curious, in, in your experience across the, the, the globe at this point now, which stakeholders across the industry are driving the most change in the different regions you're working in? I, I think there's probably two uh, answers to that. So the first one is the early adopters of BIM were typically designers, organizations like IDAS, where for the architects, the ability to model in a three-dimensional environment, coordinate ex extremely well, so avoiding the just stupid errors on site where the, the staircase has got a real beam or a pipe running through the middle of it. But these things are really hard to pick up in 2D, but as soon as you start modeling in 3D and then assigning some more attribution about this is a 300 millimeter GRP pipe or it's a concrete pipe or whatever, people know what that thing is. BIM tools like, like say an Autodesk Revit or something, those are easily picked up. So naturally, those organizations that have adopted those technologies have been early adopters also of the standards because it you know it follows. And also, they've actually been typically the authors. So the community that's authored this are those early adopters of these type of tools. I think the other group that I'm seeing, and this is particularly maybe in the more mature markets, and I'd like to say that the UK is one of those, is the owners. Because you know, the UK government BIM mandate was UK government. They invested money to help develop those standards and guides, but because they saw a benefit to me as a public taxpayer for getting better built public assets, be they hospitals, schools, roads, prisons, whatever it might be. So hopefully we could reduce the cost in the capital life cycle. 
typically by preventing errors on site. And then as we drift into operation, what benefits might we uncover? And I've said it in that particular way, because literally we've never had this rich data coming through into operations. So we literally don't know what we could do with it. What kind of ways could we mash that data up with something else? I know companies like Transport for London, for example, they've been really good at releasing open data and you've got people hacking their data together to show pedestrian movements around different parts of the city, but then linking it to events or whatever it might be. So I think the, there's really those two communities. The design community have led it, certainly at the beginning, in, in, and that will be the case where the countries are really adopting BIM, but then as it matures, the owners are going, ah, this sounds like a good thing to do, so let me ask for a bit more of that. And of course, contractors, I've not mentioned them, but they're also waking up big time. And the, the bigger contractors in Europe and America and, and, and Asia-Pac, they're going, hell, I have never had such great data and I can avoid issues on site. And finally, a, a health and safety perspective. I mentioned you, has 19650 part six. This BIM stuff can really help with health and safety. If we can avoid any physical errors during the construction or obviously use of a facility, then clearly that's got to be a good thing. It makes sense. And, and that owner-driven story is one that I'm hearing a lot more often in uh, in North America as well. And uh, if our listeners tuned back to a couple episodes ago when we had Multigreen on, they're a very progressive serial owner who is looking at construction from a sustainability lens and have some really impressive ways that they're handling building. And it's refreshing to see other owners across the board adopting these strategies as well, simply because if the owner's being intentional at the beginning of the project, starting from the RFP stage, it gives them a really great opportunity to ensure that the information they get at the end of the project actually meets their needs in a way that they can, you know, operate that facility for years and years in a much more effective way than just being handed a pile of binders and you go, here's a CD that you don't even have any way to open because who has a CD-ROM on their computer anymore? So it's a pretty cool way to, uh, to see the industry evolving. Fred, is that kind of similar in APAC in your experience or are the, the drivers of change a little bit different in your region? Actually, I think it's, it's an interesting question. And, and as Marek was talking, I was, I like the idea Oh, I like Americ mentioned the role of designers, the role of, uh, say, official institutions like governments or governance bodies or construction bodies or contractors. And in a way, I noticed that depending who was the organization pushing forward or in the AEC industry for the implementation of BIM, actually BIM nature is also different. And just by looking at my experience in APAC, and just to keep it in context, just in Asia, I think we have 35 different BIM guidelines and standards. So, because there's so many different countries trying to regulate BIM that it's really becomes a very rich, different environment for BIM to proliferate. And that's why I think it's going to be interesting to see how all these countries are going to adopt BIM ISO 9650 standards into their national standards. But getting back to your point, for instance, when you look at the Singapore market was heavily driven by government and it was heavily focused on buildability and efficiency. So we see that there is a lot of cutting edge technology efforts make, being made from the point of view of statutory submission, digital statutory submission, and at the front end, because it started from there. So we can say it is government-led in parallel with designs-led, and the market was very sophisticated initially from the point of view of consultants and statutory approval authorities, and it had a very advanced system we are even trying to we we have the e-submission for since 2009 uh, since 2015 if i'm not wrong beam is mandatory for anything that is more than 5000 square meters construction that basically in singapore is uh, almost everything uh, so it's not only public sector is across everything that we do and it's really pushing in that direction but then when we go to some other markets like for instance when i was working in melbourne there was at least the projects that I worked when I was in Australia, there was this big um, push from, from contractors 
And they were much focused on efficiency on site, avoiding mistakes, optimization, reducing construction times. And the type of beam that we were developing there is different by nature from the type of beam that we were developing at that time in, in Singapore. I, I understand that. I actually have a follow-up question tied to something you had said in your response there, tied to the number of data standards that are you know being employed in Singapore right now or across the different regions that you're working in. Like, How do we manage the challenge of different teams employing conflicting or different data standards on their projects, especially when we look at things from a global lens? It's actually a very interesting question. And we have been, over the last year and a half, we are actually trying to deal with that problem. I think that one possible way of dealing with it, I'm not too convinced that it is the necessarily the only solution, but is, okay, let's adopt a standard and let's ensure that we all do it in the same way and that will roll out to everything. So you try to push the industry from your own side. At IDES, we have this saying that we believe that great design can only be truly achieved by designers that truly understand the communities they are designing for. And this translates a little bit to everything that we do and informs also my belief at least that, hang on, it is not about IDES selling an idea, but it's about how do you actually listen to your needs? And I don't feel particularly comfortable to go to, say, Japan and impose a standard from Singapore because it doesn't make sense in that sense. So what we are working hard is to try to get what we call translators that allow us to cope with data in a more constant way internally, although then it can be actually translated or issue to a client according to their standards. It is not yet there. It requires a lot of bespoken softwares and we are talking a lot with some of the key industry developers and I'm always in contact also with your team in Singapore here. We have the advantage that you have a very big office here. Always putting that very simple questions that have a very complex and difficult answer. So I I guess at the end of the day, I don't particularly believe, I'm not yet fully convinced that the best way to, to, I think at the end, we will always, all of us will use the same ISO standard and that's a structure. But to get us to there, if we try to be imposing something too harsh, it might be more disruptive than actually trying to evolve and deal with the difference until we get there. Fred, I really appreciate the insights you brought there as far as coming into a new region or working with a new partner and the nuance you need to consider as you particular standards. And it might not be the best path forward to just show up and dictate that you're now doing X or we're doing Y together, especially with the the different cultures and the way we collaborate across different regions. So I, I do appreciate that insight. And, and Merrick, as a, somebody who has contributed to a lot of these standards in the UK, I'd really like to hear your insight on this question as well, as far as just the the vast number of standards across the different regions or even within countries and, and how we mitigate that moving forward. Yeah, it, it is a, a big issue. So certainly in terms of the sort of challenges i think of uh, moving something like ISO 19650 into different nations is i think you you alluded to it frederico and and it's around people being precious of their own this is how we've always done it and sometimes they would have been encoded in standards like a deutsches industry normal in germany i had worked in germany for six months and and everybody applies din rules so if you put anything that could have a potential conflict with that or adds a burden then people will defend their old practices, particularly if they've been effective. I'd probably say that the issue with standards, and I said this at the very beginning, is that they're not best practice. They're just good practice. There is always ways to innovate and and advance. And Fred touched on the fact that computing technology is going to revolutionise so many industry sectors and our way of life. So we need to start getting ready to embrace this continuous change that I think we're going to face. So I guess the answer is... How can we, the best of both together is the best, is the right approach to say the good things we used to do 
can be augmented with these new approaches like ISO 19650. So definitely, you know, it's the old don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think if we can strive to a little bit more excellence and these standards drift us in that direction, then that's probably a good thing. So I, I think it's just a case of every nation, every customer, every owner is going to have to take it as appropriately as they can. I appreciate that, that nuance there as far as intentionality around when and where you do implement these different standards and in, in making sure you read the room and say, okay, like where can we roll these out and how and, and what does make sense? And you make some great points just about the, the industry challenges at large. Like we have such a unique unique group of stakeholders like what other industry can you think of where you might have a 200 million dollar project that has 25 companies concurrently working in that single space to actively deliver this project on a very strict timeline with say you're building in San Francisco, an active city around you. Like the circumstances are tough and anything that we can do to level that playing field and make the collaboration and communication easier and more straightforward just feels like the right uh, the right approach. And so before we uh, we pivot over to the uh, the future for the second part of this, I do want to ask, are there any other common challenges tied to ISO 19650 or data standards that our listeners should consider as they implement these at their organizations or look to just better their collaboration with their peers. Merritt, can you kick this one off for us? I think the first thing is nomenclature, language. ISO 19650, as I said earlier, is a, con is a consensus standard. It has been developed with a community of international stakeholders. And we've got language like appointing party, appointed party. Nobody uses those terms, but they're effectively referring to the person creating the contract and the person who's been contracted. But it's trying to neutralize the language to show different ways that you can apply this. And then we've got TLAs and I've got, we've even got FLAs, four letter acronyms. So BEPs, EIRs, OIRs, AIRs, MIDIPs, TIDIPs. So what the hell is this? To, to the newbie, this stuff sounds like insane. It is like an entirely new language. So for me, I think it's really that you, you can't jump into this without putting a little bit of brain power and, and, and effort in. It's got to be done. So it, it, it is, in many cases, introducing new terminology, new concepts. But if you just take it slowly, actually, you realize, actually, this all makes sense. It's, it's only trying to slow you down. Don't do something without checking what it's suitable for. It's, it choose where you can implement these. But I think there's a lot that North America can learn from these standards, even if we're not actively mandating some of these. And I know across parts of Latin America as well, a lot of the countries are following Europe's um, lead on the, the standards that you've implemented. And I think we've done a great job uncovering the why behind data standards. And hopefully our listeners have a better understanding of what ISO 19650 really brings to the table. So let's change gears and focus on how our listeners should actually start their data journey and offer some predictions for where the future might take our industry. And I'd like to start this section off for, with a question for Fred. So this is a bit of a hypothetical, but imagine you're a large general contractor or main contractor, and you're starting to scale your operations into new regions or new countries. Where would you suggest that this, you know, hypothetical contractor starts when implementing data standards, you know, like ISO 19650? Okay, so it's quite an interesting question. I, I, I must qualify one thing. I'm, I am not a contractor, never been a contractor, and I'm not ISO... 19650 specialist. Actually, I don't even like to call myself a specialist in BIM because out of respect of all the specialists that I've worked, I, I like to define myself as a BIM enthusiast in that sense, but I'll give it a try, not, nevertheless. I think that picking up on our previous discussions on where we were discussing before, I think he really defined it very well on the beginning when we said it's about quality. As a contractor or as any of the other stakeholders for the AC sector, I actually like to call it AC plus because I think the operation is part of the equation also. Anything that you see on the standard that is going to add quality and value for a proposition, you should consider it. I can tell you about, for instance, the case of Singapore. The way that is structured the, the industry, 
And the way that it has been approached, it's being changed now, and we are working very hard, and we see the government working very hard to avoid that. But somehow, years of practice has led to this idea that you develop a BIM model that is adopts your standards, nevertheless, but then when you reach the point of transition to the contractor, basically restarts over his own model, even because of questions of liability, because if they model everything from the beginning, they know that, okay, I know what I've modeled, liability is over me, so I'm not getting liability from anyone else. So I model it because I want to make sure that it's 100% correct, because I don't want to run risks. But it's quite disrupting in terms of data and how you use it. And one of the things that I would like to see implemented as a main contractor is actually, how can I leverage data that is being generated before to actually make the transition to my ownership or authorship of my BIM models to be much more smoother in that sense. As a contractor, I will focus on trying to use and leverage um, ISO 9650 to facilitate all the information that I'm receiving from my consultants so that I don't need to reproduce it again and to bespoke the information that I need to provide to my owner at the end to inform the facility managers that came after so that I don't over provide information that doesn't add any value. So as Marek was saying in the beginning, is about quality. Where do I add quality? I think your answer is completely on point, and it, it ties back to something that that I like to, to speak about when we're talking to customers and such, and thinking about how to begin this digital transformation or data journey. And it's just start. Please start. If you haven't if you haven't started yet, step back and just you know, make that decision to commit to it and pick one small nuance where you feel that you can add value. And I, I, Fred, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like quality is one of those top tier starting points to consider. It's like, okay, like how can we bring up our quality and where can we leverage these standards to do it? Boom, you've got a line drawn in the sand that you want to march towards. And then you can iterate on that. And it's a learning experience, obviously, especially if you're bringing in new digital tools, you might not, you know, hit the ground running perfectly from the get-go, but you're still doing better than you were previously because you've captured data that you weren't doing six months ago, and you can make decisions based on that information as you move forward within your project, and then also future projects too. Merrick, I want to move on with this hypothetical contractor and throw a question in your direction. How, how can they ensure that they have quality data to work from. And the phrase garbage in, garbage out comes to mind here for me, but I'd, I'd love to hear your sense for, okay, so our hypothetical contractor has decided, I want to start, I'm going to start. Like, how do they make sure that their data is actually useful and, and they can draw some impactful insights from it? Yeah, there's obviously many ways that this could be addressed. And I think the perhaps the elephant in the room here is the procurement process and the contract. <laughs> Because depending on how the different parties have been appointed will determine the control they have over the process. If the contractor comes in on a lowest price bid at the very end of the day and he picks up an IDAS design, they've got very little chance to influence the outcome. They're going to just take it and do their best. If they are brought in earlier in the process and potentially they actually appoint a design party IDAS, then they can start imposing some of those ISO 19650 concepts like the EIR, because effectively the lead appointing party or the client, they will have set their information requirement that goes to the contractor, as well as obviously other suppliers. So if there is a subset of that information that somebody else has to deliver, then the obligation is that contractor creates their own sub EIRs and they send those to their supplier. So it's all a cascade where I'm not there to fill everything in. I've got, why bark if you've got a dog? That's the dog's job. So let them do that. So I think it's really a case of try to ensure that quality data that you allude to is provided by the appropriate party. And they might well be within your organization or outside of your organization. And just picking up on the question you raised to Fred, and I think you touched on it, is I, this isn't about an all or nothing scenario. Go fix the bits, the priority parts, the bits that are where you always make errors, the bits that maybe materials always you over waste more or they cost you too much because you haven't planned it. So I think really the way to get going is to focus on the priorities 
the biggest bang for your buck in American terminology, because then if you fix those things, you can then incrementally tackle all the others. So, yeah, certainly that, that would be my perspective. Now, you won't get the good data because you try to do everything. Do, do it piecemeal and attack, attach, tackle the most significant benefit areas, whether that's mitigating traditional issues or adding value. I think the interesting point here, and I think Merrick actually raised really the elephant in the room, that is procurement. Because the logic and the tradition of our industry has been very conflicting. It's like the AC industry, by tradition, is set up in such a way that you have owners in one side, contractors in the other side, architects in either one side or the other, but all of them are trying to fight each other. And that's also, I believe, a little bit because of the procurement models that we use. As you move into digital design, digital fabrication or construction, and digital operation of uh, assets, we have seen in recent years this, uh, the rise of different models of procurement, different models of actually coming up together with teams. And there is this idea of creating a new transparent collaborative environment that is one team mentality. And as you breach that barrier of saying, okay, I need to change this, then you're actually going to face one reality that is to say, my current procurement model doesn't actually support the full potential of this. To this idea how Human beings always have this tendency to look at technology and I have a new technology, I'm just going to apply it to my old processes. And that results in very awkward solutions. This is the problem of procurement in our industry. The procurement models that we have are not necessarily designed to potentialize a new process that is heavily reliable in transparency and collaboration. And if we look at this, everything is informed because the way that you procure and you create different budgets and you create different worlds and it's not collaborative and it's not really sustainable. I think more innovative delivery methods like integration, integrated project delivery and such are starting to hopefully cast a new lens on how we build together because as you alluded to construction has been historically litigious and there's not oftentimes a lot of incentive to be transparent with data and information because you're potentially opening yourself up to problems down the line finding ways to collaborate more effectively and incentivize people to trust each other and build in a more impactful way, I think is definitely the path forward for just bettering our industry, regardless of if you're talking about data standards or quality or any other sort of thing related to just building. And so you both alluded to the future a little bit in, in your uh, last couple responses. So I want to spo focus specifically on that for the next two questions. Um, and Fred, I'd love to get your sense. Do you think that there will be a truly global data standard that everybody abides by in the AEC industry in the future? I think there will that there is the potential to actually have a truly global data standard. If everybody's going to apply to it or not, I cannot say. <laughs> but I think there is definitely the benefit of that. And as you look at the uh, ISO tradition and all these uh, organizations that look at standards, and governments uh, start to have more constraints in terms of their annual budgets and all of these things, people will push to have uh, global data standards. I think that is something that it's going to happen in the AEC industry. I believe that data will play a core role in the way that buildings are going to be designed, delivered and constructed and operated in the future. Therefore, I, as I said in the beginning, I believe we are working towards truly a global data standard. Not sure if everybody is going to use it, but I believe that 
we should aim to have it. I'm going to probably be slightly opposite to Fred. I actually don't think we're going to get to a common data standard as such. I think that people are too anarchic that they don't everyone wants to do it their own way. It was not invented here, so I can do something better. Because I'm an engineer, engineers, the word engineer, I have to engineer something. So I think that there is a degree of this like anarchy that goes on in our industry and, and many other industry sectors as well. What we will do is narrow them down. I think there will be the rubbish ones will get thrown away. I think there's another concept that's coming, and this is a mixed answer uh, to your question, which is uh, I think one of the changes that's going to happen is we talked about ISO 19650, it's around container based working. So a container has lots of bits and pieces in it. We're going to transition at some point to an object-based way of working. So we're no longer discussing a Revit model. We're actually talking about the door or the window or the lamppost. There's going to be an element-based discussion. And how are we going to trade those design digital objects? So we will be looking at things that are being explored now around product data templates. How, what data do I need for this type of asset? What units does it use? What performance parameters do I need to capture? So I think that's the bit that will become more standardized so that I know that when I when I go and buy a, uh, let's say, a door from a, a fabricator, that it meets the performance requirements for the specification of this particular, and that's a more discrete requirement. So I think that's the thing that will change. But are we going to all speak Esperanto because it's a neutral language? No. But again, I, I sit on the Building Smart International Infraroom Steering Committee, and we're trying to develop open data schemas for infrastructure because they're absent. So I think there is going to be a gravitation towards some degree of consistency so clients can specify and and just as fred alluded you know internationally we can kind of procure in a consistent manner but there will always be local variation and in a, in a kind of final prediction of this and this is the bit i'm quite passionate about is i think as we start to get more and more technology adoption within our industry sector in order to perhaps mitigate the shortage workers because We've got a huge workload ahead of us, which is great if you're in our industry. We just don't have enough people. We often talk about an aging industry. I really want to bring more young people into our industry and for them to perceive it as a exciting place to be, to leverage these new data technologies. We often talk about things like virtual reality is exciting, AI. If we can be the industry that young people leave school and university and go, frankly, I'd rather go and work in a construction sector than in a stockbrokers or in a finance industry because i'll be such nailed to my desk there our industry is exciting it, it, you know it's potentially in the outdoors so let's use that technology to to make us the industry of choice rather than last choice Merrick, you're, uh, you're picking up on some talking points that I'm a fan of as well, as far as just energizing our industry. And I'm going to steal a term from one of our earlier guests, uh, Josh Bone, in that construction suffers a little bit from a perception problem because a lot of people in school and looking at the trades don't recognize that there's such a really exciting amount of technology that you can leverage every day on the job site. Drones, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, like the list goes on. And there's some really cool stuff. And until we get that messaging out into the world, I, I think we're going to continue to struggle, especially as the labor shortage continues to grow as a, a challenge for you know the entire industry. But especially when you look at a global lens, and I, I have to chuckle for listeners if it's not obvious, like I'm in California, Merrick's in the UK, and Fred is in Singapore. So it is 104 a.m. here in California to to ensure that all three of us are awake at some point to do this uh, this call. And I think digital uh, digital tools are just going to improve our ability to collaborate. And so to pivot to the tail end of our show, of course, we have one final and recurring question, and it's one of my favorites that we unpack every week. And so what is one tool that you will always carry in your toolbox, no matter what type of project you're working on. Merrick, how about you kick this one off? So I'm going to say it's actually free tools, but they're not very complicated. It's for those who are doing this, you won't see it. I've got a pen in my hand. I've got a notepad and it's the other one. It's my head. I, I do I do listen. I think it's really important that we don't ignore the people we're, we're with. If you can use your brain and listen to the other person and write down the, the really kind of pertinent things somebody says, that's much better than any kind of digital solution. It's really important for me to be in the room, engage with the people that are speaking and, you know, write down the bits that you thought were great or that you didn't understand so that you can question them back. So that, that would be my response. Notepad and paper and, and your own brain. 
I like that. Just the the intentionality about being present in the conversation and and making that effort to to ask the questions when they come up. Fred, how about you? What's uh, what's one tool that you uh, you like to bring to every project that uh, that stays in your toolbox, whether it's digital or physical? You're probably not going to believe this, but I just wrote on my note. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like Mark is saying, but uh, but I think it's actually two things. It's it's of course, listening. It's an amazing tool. It's like this idea that we design for people, that we design for others, is fundamental. That you actually try to go over your egos and try to actually focus on what you're trying to achieve. So listening is very important. The second one is the attitude of how you approach problems. So. I think it's the tools that we always like to bring or I always like to bring is listening and because of that, the approach to the project. I think this is why my it's one of my favorite parts of every one of these episodes because we vary from very physical tools to like I always carry a tape measure and this is why to speaking more about collaboration skills and just improving how we work together. So thank you both for you know sharing your insights and what we really like to bring to the table when you're collaborating and working on different projects. So to uh, to close this out, do either of you have anything you'd like to plug that our listeners should know about? America, how about you go first? So first and foremost, we've been talking about ISO 19650, and I'm really delighted to say that I've been working with our product team as well as a community of experts in Autodesk to enhance how we support ISO 19650. So those of you who use the Autodesk Construction Cloud and our Docs tools, we've just released some new enhancements, and they're going to get better and better. If you want to dip your toes into ISO 19650, we're, we're there to help you. And also, I've been pleased to work with our my marketing colleagues. I've actually written a few blogs recently on the same site as Digital Builders, so constructionblog.autodesk.com. So go there, please do that. And I'll definitely plug, if people don't go to Autodesk University, do look at the Autodesk University website. There are ISO 19650 classes that myself and colleagues have delivered, as well as others. So you can search for those. In November, we've got another online event. Really do encourage people to register for it. It's even free. Please join hundreds of thousands of others who visit this site. Really great resource. And that would be my kind of pitch, really. Just go and find out what's out there and learn more because this isn't easy, but there's loads of guidance. Oh, final final bit of guidance, UK BIM framework. Go there in the UK. We've been doing loads of great work. Fantastic, freely downloadable guides around ISO 19650. So for the newbies... And even the experts, there's a fantastic good practice advice that you can uh, download and use. And I'll, I'll boost the uh, the plug for Autodesk University. The fact that it's free is, you know, tremendous. And the amount of resources there for the industry is fantastic. And while we've been navigating the challenges of COVID, I do appreciate the fact that the accessibility of this information as AU has weathered this storm and gone digital is, is just a really valuable asset for our industry. Thank you for mentioning that, Merrick. And uh, Fred, do you have anything you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. Adding a little bit, of course, being... An architect that is working in the industry, our main focus daily is actually to produce designs for clients, but we all try to make an effort to push forward digitalization and digital transformation. You can easily reach me out through LinkedIn and all what I try to do in terms of promotion of the idea of digital transformation. But I wanted to bring to the table a little bit like just complimented what Marek was saying in terms of how you can actually get a little bit of framework and guidance. And being based in Singapore, I think it's also important to name the Singapore industry standards, like a lot of them pushed by BCA, but some of them also pushed by the House Development Bureau and the other bodies of the government, like the still recently released Commended Environment. But Merrick, if, if anybody wants to reach out to you with any questions, how, uh, how can they contact you? But two easier routes. One is linkedin.com. Suhotsky, I think is my link. I was the, one of the early adopters of LinkedIn, so I'm on there. I, I post occasionally. I like a lot of things more than posting. And if you really want to, you can try me on Twitter. On, I'm more of a lurker than a poster again there. I think it's I'm probably a generation behind for Twitter. But yeah, I, I do occasionally appear on Twitter as well. But uh, certainly LinkedIn is my recommendation. 
I'll do my best to pick up the Twitter slack uh, on your behalf. <laughs> Fred, how about you? Any uh, any specific ways our listeners can reach out if they have any questions? Yes, bear with me. I'm an enthusiast of LinkedIn. Lately, I've been a little bit further away from it. It's just time doesn't always allow me to go there, but I really... I'm a supporter and I'm there and I'm always looking forward to meet new people in the industry, especially the ones that are enthusiastic about digital transformation. And for me, it's all about meeting new people because I do believe that we get richer in terms of our experience and what we are able to do whenever we talk to more people and involve with more people. All right. This has been a ton of fun, and I feel ever so more informed about ISO 19650 data standards. And just I have a, a really great lens for what's going on in EMEA and APAC in a way that I didn't have before. Thank you so much to both of our guests and uh, for our listeners for taking the time to join us on this episode. If you want to reach out to me with any questions or appear on an episode, you can, of course, find me on LinkedIn or via Twitter at builder underscore digital. Digital. I promise I post more than more than Merrick does. And uh, also, you can check out our homepage by visiting construction.autodesk.com forward slash podcast. And on that page, you can sign up for our biweekly newsletter and suggest show topics or guest ideas. And if you're really loving Digital Builder, please do take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite player. And of course, you can always like, subscribe to, or share this episode if you enjoyed it. And on that final note, goodbye. You've been listening to Digital Builder. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves, and then you're done. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.